0: Um, so, after a break last week, uh, we return this evening, as Dan said, to our series on the seven signs of John's Gospel. And uh, two weeks ago, Tommy Tot Taylor um, kicked us off with the wedding at Cana and the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Um, and he drew our attention to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And let's just a flick there for a moment, because it's quite a helpful context as we look at this second sign. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us that these miracles, these seven signs, as well as the many other miracles that Jesus did, aren't just important acts in themselves, but they exist to give us direction. Um, Like the one-way sign at the end of Magdalen Road that Tom spoke about. They exist to point us in the right way. They point us to Jesus to Jesus the Messiah, and they point us to the life that we can have through him. And, I know Tom's not here, but just off the record, some of us do get off our bikes and walk down Wardlin Road. Um, So tonight we're in John chapter 4, just after Jesus met the Samaritan woman, and we're looking at the second of these seven signs John's bookmarked to see what significant things it shows us about who Jesus is and what he's about. And it's the classic and miracle narrative, isn't it? We've got a desperate man, son on his deathbed. He hears Jesus is nearby. He sets out on the 20-mile trek to find him, flings himself at Jesus' feet, begs him to come and save his dying boy. You can imagine the film, the breathtaking camera angles, showing the tantalising journey across the swooping sands. The cameras hovering in the dirt as the Eddie Redmayne, Jewish official character, lies prostrate at Jesus' feet. The drops of sweat glistening on his brow, the expectant hush of the crowd all around. We could write the script for it. Until, that is, we get to verse 48. Because the next shot isn't Jesus pulling the man to his feet. It isn't Jesus praising him for his faith. It isn't Jesus setting forth without a moment's delay for Capernaum. It's something a little bit more jarring. A little bit less comfortable. It's the words, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Ouch. It's like the awkward moment at the climax of a Modern Family episode. And the ten-year-old Luke, in the middle of the family dinner or the school show or the shopping mall, says so exactly what he thinks, to the dismay of everyone else present. It's a bit inconsiderate, surely, Jesus. I mean, it's certainly not a line that's going to feature in any guide to counselling the relatives of the terminally ill. And whilst we know that there's truth in it, it just sort of seems a little bit too harsh, given the circumstances. Yes, they and we should believe Jesus without needing to see more signs and miracles. But come on, Jesus. This is a desolate man, desperate for his son to be healed. Surely we can sort out his theology later. Well, this evening, as we look at these verses, we're going to wrestle with why Jesus says what he says. And what this sign shows about who he is. And hopefully we'll see our first point now. Point one. Don't come to Jesus on your own terms as a miracle maker. The official and many of the Jews came to Jesus on their own terms and for a miracle-doer. So you might have noticed, as we read the passage just now, that things actually begin to get a little bit thorny before we get to verse 48. Have a look down at verse 44 and 45, and we get a little sticking point here in the transition between these two verses. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Hang on a minute. A prophet has no honour in his own country, and yet his countrymen, the Galileans, the people from the towns in the north of Israel um, around Nazareth where Jesus grew up, welcomed him. Well, some commentators try to kind of argue around this by claiming that Jesus' birthplace in Bethlehem makes Judea in the south his homeland, not Galilee. Or they say that Jesus' true home is in heaven, so that's his homeland, no one on earth. And of course, that's true, but to me, it feels like a bit too forced an attempt to smooth out what looks like a fairly purposeful contradiction here. Well, I think the key point lies in the two verbs in verses 44 and 45, welcome and honour. For to welcome is simply to greet, to show pleasure at an arrival. And you can greet people in different ways, in different contexts. For example, if we were to meet David Cameron tomorrow morning, you could welcome him as the MP for nearby Whitney. You could welcome him as an alumnus of our city's top university. Or you could welcome him as a leader of the Remain campaign for the EU. Welcome is about the subject. It's about the person giving it. You can give a good welcome, a lukewarm welcome, a poor welcome. But honour, honour is about the object. It's to give the regard, the esteem and the dignity that the object is due. To honour David Cameron, you really have to treat him as Prime Minister. You have to treat him with the deference and the respect that that position deserves. And to treat him as anything less than prime minister really would be to dishonor him. So the Galileans welcomed Jesus in verse 45. They're pleased to see him and to have him among them. He was a bit of a celebrity probably, famous for the amazing things that they and their friends had seen him do, as verse 45 tells us, in Jerusalem. The Galileans welcomed Jesus, but they did not honor him. They didn't treat him as he deserves to be treated. They don't acknowledge and respect him as the person he truly is. They welcome him on their own terms, instead of honouring him on his. And if we flip back for a moment to John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25, we'll see that this isn't the first time that Jesus has had a response from the Jews that has been less than entirely sincere. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Jesus was doing signs in Jerusalem, and people were believing. But Jesus didn't trust them. He didn't rate their faith, for he knew what was in them. He knew that their faith, that their interest in him, was still quite shallow. It had little depth or substance or real knowledge of who he was, why he had come, what he was about. And similarly, he doesn't regard the welcome the Galileans give him very very highly here, because it's quite shallow, it's quite self-centred. They're hungry for Jesus, but they're hungry for him on their own terms. They're coming to him for what they can get out of it their health, their fulfilment, their happiness. And they're coming for the spectacle, the show. They're coming because they want to see more, bigger, better, ever more impressive shows and displays of his power. Many of you, I'm sure, will remember the career of David Blaine, still active to this day, according to Wikipedia. Um, He started off in the late 90s as a simple street magician across the US. His first big stunt was in 1999, and he spent seven days buried underneath a a three-and-a-half-ton water tank. He then spent two and a half days in 2000 encased in a block of ice in Times Square. After that, he spent 35 hours stood on a 50-square-centimetre, 30-metre-tall pole in 2002, before the following year heading our way and spending 44 days, I'm sure you remember, encased in a glass box above the River Thames. Um, And I remember that there was something quite enticing about his uh, escapades, much as I hate to admit it. It was all a little bit sinister and scary, And yet you couldn't quite help tuning in. You just wanted to know what would happen. Would he manage it? Would he pull it off? What state would he be in when he came out? And each time as the stunt got bigger, your expectations got bigger. Each time we wanted to see something more, bigger, better than last time. We craved ever more impressive shows and displays of this man's power and what he could do. Just like the Jews here, craving ever bigger displays of Jesus' miracle-making power. You see, they welcomed Jesus, but they welcomed him on their own terms as a miracle-maker. They wanted to have him amongst them to meet their needs and to serve their fantasies. So perhaps this gives us a little context for the frustration we can feel in Jesus' comment in verse 48. And the NIV helpfully adds in the word people to make it clear that the you of Jesus' rebuke is plural. Jesus is speaking to more than just the royal official. But perhaps it still doesn't quite sit comfortably. Perhaps you're still a little bit defensive for the royal official. I mean, why did Jesus address the comment to him at all? Surely he's exempt. It should be some sort of Shakespearean aside or a straight-to-the-camera Miranda monologue addressing the audience solely and directly. Surely the royal official doesn't, shouldn't be included in this rebuke at all. And yet... Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. There's no getting off the hook. This is directed at the Royal Official too. And I've wrestled with this for many hours over the past couple of weeks, and indeed years, when I've studied this passage before. But I think that the Royal Official too, ultimately does come to Jesus on his own terms and for a sign. And I think Jesus' rebuke here... It's intended to test whether his faith goes any deeper than that of those around him. Yes, his motives for coming to Jesus are different. They're better. He isn't just here for a spectacle. He's here because of his desperate circumstances. He's here because his little boy is dying, a pain that's unimaginable for those of us who haven't experienced it personally. He isn't here just to see what Jesus can do, out of curiosity, out of hunger for an impressive show. He's here because he's heard Jesus can bring people back from the brink of death, and because that's his desperate hope for his son. But flick with me for a moment at Matthew chapter 8, the healing of the centurion's servant. Let's have a quick skim through verses 5 to 13 of Matthew 8. When John falls faith, falls a little short. Matthew 8 verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but to say the word and my servant will be healed. Very similar circumstances, but quite a different request. Just consider the profundity of the centurion's insistence that Jesus should not come, as his power is such that he doesn't need to, and as the recipient for his hopeful grace is so unworthy that he doesn't deserve to have Jesus come. And then observe the limited understanding, the perhaps shallowness, of our royal (laughs) officials' unthinking, repeated demand that Jesus come with him. The Lord of Matthew 8 centurion, just a sir for John 4's royal official. But whilst we wouldn't want to judge the official too harshly, hopefully you're beginning to see just the lack of depth in this man's understanding of and his approach to Jesus. He most certainly welcomes Jesus, but can we really say that he honours him when honours about the recipient and not the giver, and the official's knowledge of Jesus seems so basic? So the royal official, like the crowd, comes to Jesus on his own terms, as a miracle maker. And maybe that manner of approaching Jesus rings a little true for you this evening. Perhaps if you were there, you too would be hiding somewhere in the crowd. You're interested, often stood on the sidelines of the Christian faith, but not yet a believer. But you cloak your disbelief in genuine pleas and requests, in reasonableness and rationality. How could I believe when? How could you be so sure that, if only we knew... But deep down, you're after the spectacle, sitting happily on the fence, waiting for God to prove himself to you more convincingly, justifying your unbelief by claiming that your lack of faith is God's problem. He simply hasn't done enough that it would be reasonable for you to believe. If Christianity is going to convince you, you need to see more, bigger, better from God and the Christian church. Well, if that's the case, then let me ask, what will it take to satisfy you? Where does curiosity end? And faith begin. Will there ever be enough evidence? I'm just going to flick ahead to John 12, 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Signs alone are not enough to bring a person to faith. Faith is about more than the show. No amount of miracles witness can bring someone to faith. It's what we do with these signs that matters. As we saw in John 20 verses 13 and 31 earlier, the signs are there as signposts to point to something else. This way they say, look here, go to the person of Jesus, discover him. No one ever got to London by counting up all the different signs they could see pointing the way. But perhaps for lots of us we're a bit more like the royal official. A genuine interest in Jesus. A Christian already quite probably. But we just sort of want to stay at the centre of attention. You come to Jesus, but on your own terms. Faith is more about fulfilment than truth for you. You're about seeing your needs and desires met and satisfied. And your relationship with God is, to be frank, a little bit one-sided. When things are hard, you're quick to fall on your knees before him, praying earnestly for your heart's desires, but without ever really having read and considered what God might have to say about you, your life, your priorities, and his plan. And when life's going well... Well, God just is quite so much on the agenda. He goes on the back burner. A little bit dispensable, dare I suggest. You rank your needs, your wants, your desires as number one over anything God might have to say. Never really considering whether God might have something else in mind for you than for bringing up babies or living and working abroad or getting married or seeing your children well brought up or getting to the top of your profession. You're there to ask But you're rarely around to listen. And church is about how you're serving, not about what God might be doing. Ultimately, you're still there, running the show, going to God when and as you need him. You see, we're to come to Jesus, not on our own terms, as a miracle worker. But we're to come to Jesus on his terms, as a Messiah. Jesus challenges the official to trust him, not as a miracle worker, who will fulfill his desires, there's a saviour who speaks God's words so back in verse 49 the crowd reels in shock at Jesus' words the heart pumping music returns the royal official, a little stunned not quite sure what to say, repeats his request, sir, come down, before my child dies and here's the sledgehammer moment, Jesus' reply in verse 50, go your son will live the official asks for a sign Jesus offers him a word. I'm going to heal him, Jesus responds, but you're not going to see it. You're going to have to believe that I can and that I will do it without any tangible evidence. Will you trust me? And what a tantalising moment. The official realises that he's going to get no further with Jesus. It's accept what Jesus is saying or, well, it seems a challenge, almost a mockery a promise that's almost unbelievable. And yet, if the royal official really knew Jesus, if he'd researched the miracles Jesus had performed already, if he'd heard what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, verse 14, if he knew what the Old Testament had to say about the Messiah, whilst he still, no doubt, would have come to Jesus with the same substance in his request, he would perhaps have come in a different manner. Turn with me to Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Jesus, the Messiah. Is the giver of life. He's the source of life in John chapter 1, verse 3. In John chapter 5, verse 24, all who come to him will have life. As God's people, we can trust our lives and the lives of those we love who know him with Jesus. Our loved ones in the Lord are safe with him for all eternity. But what consolation is that, you might say, to this man whose son is dying long before his time? Well, I think that's where we humbly have to say that nothing in this life gets to trump God. Not health, not home, not work, not love, not family, not life, not death. Nothing in our lives gets to trump God. Nothing's more important than God. Nothing can take (coughs) precedence over God. We can bring no demand to bear over Jesus, requiring that he meet it or else He's the word of God. Who are we to come, stomping our feet, demanding that he does what we tell him? Nothing in our lives can trump God. We must come with nothing to him. No requests, no demands, no prerequisites. Giving it all up to him, and committing our sin and our souls into his hands. And of course, that doesn't deny that there are things of huge significance and sorrow that we'll meet in our lives and that we'll see in the world around us. It's not to deny that death, and the death of children in particular, is tragic and a source of great pain and hurt and loss. I mean, Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But our sorrow at such hardships ought not to be all-consuming. And Jesus must take precedence over it, whether he acts as we desperately long for or not. We can't hold anything before or against Jesus. Even the lives of those we love the most. All has to be given up to him. Easy to say, when life goes well. Rather harder, I imagine, when you're facing tragedy. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And verse 33 of that same chapter. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. See, there's something even bigger at stake here than the royal official's son's life. And that's the royal official's soul. And he must come to Jesus with nothing, if he would hope to save it. William Taylor from St. Helens Bishopsgate in London brilliantly recasts how the royal official might have better made his request. Had he come to Jesus with a fuller knowledge of who Jesus was? Lord, I know you're the Messiah. We've seen the signs. I know you will lift the shroud of death on the final day and that my son is safe with you for eternity. Might you please have mercy on him at this point and heal him? So the royal official has a decision to make. Will he try to insist on his own terms, begging again that Jesus accompany him home? Will he curse the Messiah who does not seem to understand the desperation of his situation, the rightness of his cry for help? Or will he go? Head home, hoping, trusting, daring to think that this word of Jesus' just might prove true. And to be fair to the royal official, to act on such a seemingly slight premise is a huge step of faith. It reminds me a a little of that moment when, as a woman, you find out you're first pregnant. You've done your research, you've checked your timings, this is exactly what you were hoping for, and yet there you are, standing and looking at this little piece of plastic, which now shows a cross instead of just a line, like all the other ones you've done before. And you're supposed to believe that you're pregnant. You're supposed to believe that because of this little cross, there's something growing inside of you, a little life on its way to having its own brain, its own beating heart, its own eyes, mouth, nose, eyelashes, cuticles. And you're supposed to believe because of this little cross that it's living inside you. And you're supposed to act on it. So you take a few other pregnancy tests just in case. They all say the same thing. You read and reread the rubric on the pregnancy test packet. 99% accurate, it says. You research online, only to find again that you only get a positive reading if you definitely have the hormones. It's if you don't have the hormones, yet that you might still be pregnant when you get a negative reading. You go to the doctor. She just congratulates you and hands you some paperwork and books you in for a midwife appointment on the scan. You spend countless hours looking at your belly and poking it, just wondering, trying to believe it. Finally, 12 weeks later... You see a green image on an ultrasound screen. Well, that could be straight-off Google Images, you think. Probably just mixed you up with the pregnant-looking woman in the room next door. And yet, slowly, you start to prepare. You stop drinking alcohol. Stop eating soft cheese, warm meat, licorice, apparently. You start taking vitamins. You nervously tell your family, your friends, your employer. You book and attend your midwife appointments. You turn up for your 20-week scan. You start collecting hand-me-down maternity clothes. You stop watching One Born Every Minute. You start reading up on breastfeeding versus bottles. You go to your antenatal classes. You buy the pram, the cot, the Moses basket. You pick a name. And nine months later, you lie in the hospital, God willing, holding your baby in your arms. To trust a word in a world which demands endless, concrete, visual proof seems crazy. And it would be crazy not to in that situation. And Jesus calls us to come to him on his terms as a Messiah who speaks who gives us his word there will never be enough signs to convince us on their own they're just signposts pointing us to the person of Jesus pointing us to what he says are we listening and where can we in the official look for an example of what this listening looks like well actually no further than the passage that immediately precedes ours have a look at verse 39 (coughs) many of the Samaritans Chapter 4, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritan came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. The Samaritans didn't come to Jesus on their own terms with their tunnel vision, to demand their requests, their demands, their mandates. And they didn't believe because of what they saw Jesus do. They came to Jesus. uh, They came to the Jesus that they heard. They believed because of what they heard him say. How humbling that must have been for the first Jewish readers of this gospel to see that enemies of God's people come to faith so quickly, simply and humbly because of what Jesus says. And how humbling it should be for us too, myself included. You can be so slow to believe. Back to the official's decision. Verse 50. Joy of grace. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. The official sets out home. And you can imagine the end of film montage from here onwards, trekking through the wilderness again, spying his servants on the horizon, seeing the joy on their faces, learning that his son is healed, learning he was healed at the exact moment at which Jesus spoke, and returning home to a delighted family, all putting their faith in Christ and praising him together. And notice the saving faith that has now come to this family in verse 53. So he and his whole household believed. To quote William Taylor again, it's only when we put our trust in Christ and see the life he gives us that we become convinced believers. So I wonder where this leaves you this evening. Don't be a member of the Jewish crowd, always waiting for, demanding, expecting more, craving signs that will never convince you, And refusing to put your trust in and listen to Jesus. And don't be the royal official when he first comes to Jesus. Coming on your terms with your needs. Demanding that Jesus bend to your whims. Be the royal official at the end. Be the Samaritan. Seeing the signs. Coming to Jesus for who he he is. On his terms. And listening to him. Trusting his word for you. And finding life in his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is the word of God. Help us to come to him, not on our own terms, with our desires, our needs, our priorities. Help us to come to him on his terms and listen to his word for our lives. Amen.